What form is taken when one achieves a state in which he or she will no longer be born? That uh, state is called uh, attainment of uh, arahanthood or full enlightenment. In that state one will not be reborn. That state also is called the attainment of Nibbana, total liberation from greed, ignorance. These are the two major driving force of individuals from life to life. So when this state is attained, then both greed and ignorance would be totally eliminated from the mind, then the person would not be reborn. How attainable is enlightenment? Are there enlightened beings now? If so, do they know they are enlightened? Enlightenment is uh, achievable here in this very life, provided somebody very uh, systematically, meticulously practice the system, follow the steps, then it is achievable in this very life. There are also certainly could be enlightened persons now, but they don't come out and uh, publicize the attainment because they remain almost anonymous. They don't expect any recognition and they simply keep quiet uh, for themselves to remain very peaceful. They mingle with people. Some of them can even live household life up to a certain level. Enlightenment also has uh, four levels, as I mentioned earlier. One is stream entry level, second is once returnless level, third is never returnless level, fourth is arahant or, or final state. Those who have attained the first, second levels can still stay in the society, mingle with people. Those who are in the third level are very much interested in leaving home life and entering uh, monastic life. And those who have attained full enlightenment do not stay in household life because they are totally bent towards living monastic life. So, the difficulty in recognizing them is that they don't come out and make publicity. And there are some fakey pretenders uh, who even publish in newspapers and write books saying they are Aran so and so, uh, Anagan so and so. These days we can find them in some 
Theravada Buddhist countries, and there is a big hue and cry over this kind of false claims. The very fact that somebody wants to be publicized, want to be, want to be recognized, itself means that the person has not attained it, because that shows the person's ego. <laughs> One who attains that state does not have ego at all and does not expect any recognition from anybody. Does Buddhism offer an explanation of creation? Buddhism does not give any explanation of creation. Buddhism uh, talks about uh, expanding universe and expand that universe, then contracting universe and contracted universe. There are party terms for them. Sangvatta, expanding. Sangvatta thai, expanded. No, I'm sorry, vivatta. Vivatta is, vivatta is expanding. Vivatta thai, expanded universe. Sangvatta means shrinking, contracting. And Sangvatta thai is contracted. So, the universe is expanding. When the expansion is complete, it begins to contract. When the contraction is complete, again it begins to expand. It takes, I don't know how many trillions of years it takes to expand, and how many trillions of years you don't know how long it remains expanded. This sort of thing we can find in Buddhist literature, but Buddhism does not talk of the origin of the universe, because it is mere speculation, not given any conclusive evidence for its beginning in time and space. And so Buddha does not talk about something that is not provable, that does not have any particular evidence to prove it. So we did not talk about that. Does mindfulness practice hinder the creative or artistic thought processes? Example, many of my best works seem to have come from some type of sporadic thought process we are trying to eliminate. Also, is there a place for music in the Dhamma? You are asking about uh, creative. If somebody by practicing mindfulness, when somebody cleans up the mind, then one can use it for some secular things as well. But like creating, become an artist and become creative artist, a musician, a composer and so forth, they can do it quite well. The main purpose of mindfulness practice is to eliminate our greed, hatred and delusion. Now, by creating various secular things like music and so forth, we do not eliminate or remove our desire, but increase our desire, attract more and more people. We become more and more uh, sort of uh, popular. And that can even be an impediment for our liberation from samsara. Of course, mindful 
practice when the mind is become clear, they can do all these things. But music, there are the whole teaching of the Buddha is divided into nine parts, nine cl- groups, nine classes. I can say them in Pali, but one is uh, things that we recite. When you compose something in Pali, we recite it. Like we have our Vandana book, we recite in the morning. And if we use the, even the recital, it very, it recites something very meaningful, with total attention. Knowing, understanding the meaning of what we recite, that even can lead to gaining concentration and uh, developing our insight and even attain enlightenment. But all depends on the thing that uh, depends on the contents of the recital. If the recital is very meaningful, based only on truth, facts, and then we focus our mind on it when we recite and understand and then can help to attain liberation. There is a Sanyutta Nikaya. <coughs> Sanyutta Nikaya is one of the five uh, divisions of uh, sutras, discourses. Nikaya means uh, divisions. Five Nikayas are Diga Nikaya, Majjhima Nikaya, Sanyutta Nikaya, Anguttara Nikaya and Kurtaka Nikaya. These are the collection of sutras put in certain order. The third Nikaya called Sangyutta Nikaya. Sangyutta Nikaya commentary tells us a story in Sri Lanka. This commentary is uh, written in Sri Lanka apparently to quote Sri Lankan story. A group of monks were walking in a forest. Then they heard a farm girl singing a song. First they heard the sound. It just happened to be a woman's sound, woman's voice. So normally any man's ear goes to woman's voice, particularly if it is a singing. So Buddha said in Anguttara Nikaya, Naham bhikkira anyang ega saddhampi samanupasami yang purusasya chittam pariyadaya tittati yatidam bhikkri itti saddham. Because I don't know any other sound which can capture the ears of man other than the sound of a woman, woman's voice. So, especially when they sing, they sing in a very beautiful way. So these monks were walking, they heard this sound, Naturally, their ear went there, they had no attention. And they continued, and the sound came in the forest in the very calm, you know, very peaceful atmosphere with cool, calm air <laughs> in the forest. They heard this and they walked towards the sound, the voice, and then slowly, first they heard the voice, but not the words. That is normally how it is. 
as they were approaching, they heard the sound and the words. Then they pay attention to the words. Then the words happen to be the words of the Buddha. She was singing some new songs composed of Dhamma, Dhamma message. They paid attention to it and it is said by paying attention to it, contemplating the meaning of these words, they all attain stages of enlightenment. So, sometimes music even can help somebody to focus the mind, draw attention, and if the music happened to be composed of the truth, Dhamma, then that can help the person attain liberation. So all depends on the contents of the song, music. Will all beings, animals, bacteria, etc., eventually be reborn as humans? Oh, yes. You know, this uh, samsara, samsara is uh, uh, repetition of birth and death. It is said, Khandanam Patipati Dhatu Ayatanari Zabhuchinam Vartamana Samsaroti Pauchati in Pali. This uh, aggregates keep repeating again and again and again in various forms and sizes and places. It is a very big topic. Buddha said, there is not one single living being who has not been our relative in one life or another, who has not been our mother, father, brother, sister, uncle, and so forth and so on. Everyone. You all must have been my brothers, sisters, uncles, niece, nephews, and fathers, and so forth and so on. We all related, including animals. Even animals, we have been born as animals, we have been born as divine beings, we have been born as gods, goblins, and so forth and so on. This samsara is so long. It is so long, I, <laughs> I like to give a very very vivid Buddha has given ten similes in Sanyutta Nikaya, ten similes. We don't need all of them. If we take one of them, perhaps that can give us a, a picture. He said, uh, suppose all the trees in India, is called Jambudvipa. India was called Jambudvipa those days. Jambudvipa is not like, uh, India was not a small country like now. It is fragmented. Now we have Pakistan, Bangladesh, Afghanistan, and Nepal, and so forth. Those days, all of them, one India, one Jambudvipa. And Buddha said, if all the trees in entire Jambudvipa was not so much populated, those days there were a lot of trees, those more trees. And Buddha said, if all the trees in Jambudvipa were cut down and cut into small pieces, I don't know how small, maybe two inches pieces, and pile them up. Just imagine how big that wood pile could be, maybe higher than Mount Everest. So if somebody were to take one piece from the pile, huge pile, huge mountain, take one piece and say, take it and put one side, this is my mother in previous life, this life. 
This is my mother, previous life. This is my mother, the life before that. This is my mother, life before that. This is my mother, life before that. You remove each and every piece saying, this is my mother, this is my mother. In that life, life before that, life before that, life before that. All the wood, the pieces of wood, would exhaust, come to an end. Still, the amount of mothers we had in samsara is much more than that. Only mother. Similarly, if you take father, brother, sister, uncle, aunt, and so forth, say, this is my so-and-so, this is my so-and-so, so many of them. And he said, the amount of tears that we have shed over the death of one, our, only our mother, so many mothers, so many trillions, un incalculable number of mothers, over their death, the amount of tears we have shed is much more than all the ocean waters. See how much water in the oceans? The tears that we have shed in samsara over the death of our mothers is much more than that. Just imagine our fathers, brothers, sisters, and so forth. So many mothers, so many fathers. Because we have been reborn so many times. And therefore, among them, we were born animals, snakes, fish, <laughs> you know, I don't know, so many things. So animals have a chance to become human beings. You just imagine, you have dogs, dogs, pets. Sometimes you feel that they are humans. They have so much human characteristics. You know, I had a dog here for 17 years. I know how he behaved. Cats, many domesticated animals. There are many good, wonderful qualities that reflect human behavior. Those who are wild, untamed, because they are shy, they are afraid of us, therefore we don't know. They all have this potential to become human. And these next two are the same theme of regarding uh, animals and plants. So I'll read both of them because you'll probably be able to answer both these at the same time. Okay. All of our actions, even benign ones like walking or planting a garden, have potential to harm or kill other beings. How should we think about this? And are plants part of the cycle of rebirth? That is, that seems to be a little too far-fetched to believe that we will be reborn as plants. There is no any evidence of uh, ha plants having any uh, human uh, potential, uh, human qualities. They have, uh, they have life. So they cannot, uh, they don't have consciousness, they cannot think. So we don't think plants have has power to commit karmas, and therefore they are not, uh, they don't fall into the same category. However, Buddha has so much respect for the nature. He said, Vanam chindata marukkam, 
and this will destroy, cut down your defilements. Buddha said, uh, having given instructions on meditation, he said, because there are trees, go, sit under them. Sit under trees. They give you shelter. Meditate. There is one of the thirteen uh, austere practices. One of them is Rukkamola uh, Senasana. That is, the monastic's uh, lodging is tree, tree root of a tree. And uh, when we receive full ordination, one of the instructions is Rukkamula Senasana Nisai Pabhajja. Pabhajja means uh, ordination. Uh, we, had, we are reminded uh, that uh, we receive ordination to spend time under trees. So, remember Buddha was born under trees, attained enlightenment under trees, and passed away between trees, under trees. So trees are a very special place in uh, Buddhist literature. So, we, one of the Vine rules, monks rules, called Bhutagama, that means we have to, we will, we would commit an offense if we destroy a plant, seed. So we have respect for plants and trees. At the same time, we don't think that they have consciousness like. These rules uh, generally don't apply to farmers. They have to cultivate seeds, produce, uh, you know, crops to get, you know, seeds, cereal, and so forth, for human consumption, or animal consumption. So, but they don't, we don't consider them to be, to be reborn as human beings. Please, what are the invisible beings? Obviously, there is more than we sense. Are they? Obviously, there's more than we sense. More than? More than we sense, like perceive. Yeah. Yes, invisible beings, we uh, think of deities, various kind of deities, they are invisible beings. And we believe that there are beings called Pethas, Asuras, they are invisible beings. They certainly are not uh, perceivable to our ordinary senses, but uh, they invisibly exist, and sometimes they even possess people, and through human beings they convey messages to other human beings. Sometimes they stay in uh, uh, holy places as a divine beings, 
they love to stay in a quiet, peaceful, so-called noble, holy places. They don't necessarily have to be Buddhist, they can be Christian, they can even be Muslim, <laughs> they can be Buddhist, depending on what kind of religious affiliation they had before they died. But because uh, all beings have the possibility of becoming invisible beings, depending on their karma. Karma is not something particularly designed or set aside for Buddhists. <laughs> karma is, anybody can commit karma. Uh, Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, uh, Zoroastrians, and people who don't have religion. Anybody can commit karma. Uh, committing karma and attaining liberation is, uh, there's uh, some relationship, but depending on what kind of karma they have committed, they can be reborn into various forms, human, animals, visible, invisible, divine, and so forth. So, we believe that there are such invisible beings. Uh, unfortunately, we cannot uh, perceive them, encounter them, and have a sort of a communication with them directly. Some people, you know, they have learned a technique of uh, communicating. They do communicate. I don't know how true it is, but uh, they say they communicate with them. <coughs> so forth. Uh, there's a there's a totally different uh, realm existing parallel to this universe. That is what uh, quantum physicists say. Parallel universe. <laughs> parallel to this universe, there is another universe which is totally different from this, but existing, you know, in according to regular physics, no two objects can occupy the same space at the same time. This a, we all know that is a law of physics, and regular law of physics. But uh, quantum physicists believe invisible realm can exist within the visible realm. That's why they call it parallel universe. So, that's what I had to say about it. <laughs> How can I remember the Dhamma amid the seductions and distractions of a worldly life? How can we remember Dhamma? Yeah, amid mm -hmm. the seductions and distractions of a worldly life. I see. You know, if we understand what Dhamma means, None of these things is an obstruction to remember Dhamma. <laughs> In the midst of all this, we can remember Dhamma. Where is Dhamma? You say, what, uh, in the of... Amid the seductions and distractions of worldly life. Distraction? Uh, seduction. Seduction. And distractions. And distraction. Seduction and distraction themselves are Dhamma. So, right, Dhamma is right there. You are with them. That means, when we think of uh, destructions, huh? what is destruction? Well, actually, distractions. Distraction, yeah. I'm sorry, distraction. What are the distractions? Distractions may be something disturbing to our mind, 
maybe more politics, economics, maybe uh, uh, wars, uh, crimes, maybe things like that, maybe distractions. These are all examples of Dhamma. Some are called wholesome Dhamma, others are unwholesome Dhamma. Unwholesome Dhamma, Dhamma is the state that disturbs the mind. Wholesome Dhamma is the state that brings peace to the mind. So, we live with both. Sometimes we have distracting factors, distracting phenomena. Sometimes we have peaceful phenomena. Both are Dhammas. Dhamma has many meanings. One Dhamma, when we write Dhamma, to denote the general meaning of Dhamma, we use simple D, lowercase d. When we use the Dhamma to refer to the Buddha's teaching, we use capital D, uppercase D. So, both are Dhammas. Distraction, Buddha talked about it. And uh, uh, non-distraction, he talked about it. When we meditate, for instance, meditate on the mind, chitta-nupasana in Pali, chitta-nupasana, practicing mindfulness of consciousness, one of the four foundations of mindfulness. Chitta-nupasana, meaning uh, becoming mindful of various mental states. One is called vikittan-chittan, vikittan-chittan-tipajanati, Sankirtan Chitta, Sankirtan Chitta, Tipajanati. Vikirtan Chitta means distracted mind. Sankirtan Chitta means contracted mind. One is disturbed mind, other is sunken mind. That means it doesn't do much, you know, it is just uh, sort of like a depression, not very much uh, activity. So both are Dhammas. And when we practice uh, the fourth foundation of mindfulness, we have restlessness and worry, one of the hindrances. And uh, restlessness is one of the fetters as well. These are dhammas. That means that which affects our mind in one way or the other, positive or negative, is dhamma. In other words, the object of mind, whatever it is, it can be politics, economics, you know, crimes and whatever, whatever becomes an object of mind is Dhamma. So therefore sometimes we call Mananchapajanadi, Dhammechapajanadi. Know the mind and know the mind objects. <laughs> so all mind objects are Dhamma. They may not be visible to our eyes, audible to our ear. It may not be a, a what you call, can, cannot be smelled, cannot be tasted, uh, cannot be touched, but the mind can become aware of it. For example, uh, we hear political disturbances. When we say political disturbances, so many things involve. So many things are involved. 
it can be discrimination it can be unfairness it can be an injustice it can be greedy political activities it can be war in declare declaration of anything they can be mind objects it is the mind that disturbs these things disturb mind also we keep we hear peace solidarity friendship mutual understanding uh, good relationship we don't see them cannot hear them cannot smell them but they become mental objects so any mental object is dhamma so once we understand the, the word dhamma in any situation in the of all this we can experience dhamma so the question is making the distinction between what dhamma we should pay attention to what dhamma we should not pay attention to if the dhamma that always disturb our mind and uh, disturb our peace we try not to pay attention to them or try to get rid of them from our mind if the dhamma is peaceful we try to cultivate it and maintain These two uh, next questions are both on metta, so I'm just going to very easily combine them. How should we practice metta with those who are unfriendly with us, those who may wish us harm, and those that we dislike profusely? Now, <coughs> those who disturb us, unfriendly, 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 wish to cause us harm. is to cause us harm and those that we dislike profusely we dislike profusely <laughs> <laughs> not really <a> bit profusely <laughs> you know when we practice metta we don't think of people friendly unfriendly and uh, enemies and so forth we think of our state of mind <laughs> now uh, when we when we practice metta to calm our own mind we imagine so and so is planning to hurt us the person may not may actually not be planning to hurt us but our imagination our thinking is so powerful that we cultivate this thought in our mind and there may be someone who we don't like at all it is not that person's problem that is our own problem it is our in our own our own mind we like somebody very much that person even does not know that we like that person that is in our own mind hate also is like that so when we practice metta we practice metta for ourselves to make our mind calm peaceful to remove our resentment and anger from our mind you know the even the other person whom we think our adversary and profusely we don't like <laughs> that person 
maybe thinking of you. So and so is such a nice person. Uh, I like to be friendly, so and so. But in your mind, you think so and so so bad, so ugly. I must. This that person hates me. I hate so and so. You create this thought in your own mind. <laughs> so metta practice benefits the one who practices it, not the one that is outside. This honestly, that is what metta practice does. It helps the one who practices it. Other people even don't know what it is. They just do their business. No, passive. Nothing is. Nothing happening in the world. But in your mind, you you know create animosity or friendship. If you can't create friendship in your mind, you are the one who enjoy. If you cultivate anger in your mind, you are the one who suffers. So we may you may think, oh, Bhantiji is talking about all nonsensical, you know, <laughs> ideological, uh, uh, just pure theory and so forth. In fact, in practical life, that is very true. In practical life, uh, if we think so and so is my enemy. Even that person does not know anything about you. Uh, you feel very uncomfortable to see the person, to talk to the person, to associate with the person. <coughs> If you think that person is my friend, you feel relaxed, you feel comfortable. You go and say hello, how are you? You can smile, you can talk, and and even if that person has some kind of dislike for you. The person immediately opens a heart and you know becomes relaxed and tries to talk to you. So this is there are a lot of things to say about metta. I try to restrain myself. Uh, you when you come to metta retreat, it is a uh, eight day retreat. I give eight dhamma talks, one hour talk on each aspect of different angles of metta. Somebody listen to this metta retreat talks uh, who was here. When that person was here, did not uh, talk with me anyway. Very one or two words occasionally. So the person left here, uh, went to Sri Lanka and listened to these tapes on in Sri Lanka, and wrote me back, you know, about five-page letter, saying that how much uh, that person uh, uh, learned from my talk on metta. Because I spoke on different angles of metta, so it's a big subject. When you unfold it, uh, we can see how much we can learn from metta, how much we can practice, how practical it is. So I think this is the answer to my earlier question. Good morning, you know, I agree. Good morning. The loss of a loved one signify that one is not mindful enough of impermanence and suffering that accompanies attachment. Very true. That's true. These these are the very words of the Buddha. He said, "Tanha jati soko, tanha jati bhaya, tanha vipamuttasa nati soko kuto bhaya." Soko means grief or mourning. 
that arises from clinging, from attachment. If we train ourselves, train our mind to see the negative side of our greed or attachment, negative side means how much pain it brings to us, keep repeating. You know, attachment brings pain, pain, uh, not pleasure. And pleasure is very, very short-lived, but the more uh, pain in our mind. So that is, that is the second noble truth. Not to get what one wants is suffering, and to get what one wants also is suffering. You know, it sounds uh, contradictory. We understand not to get what one wants is suffering, but how can we have suffering by getting what we want? Because what we, when we got what we want, we always have a fear of losing it. Because you are so much attached to it, you want to hold on to it. The harder we try to hold on to it, more pain we experience. Because anytime anything can happen. And we lose the grip. We suffer. And when it really happens by death, see the amount of pain we have. So naturally, the question repeated what the Buddha said. It is our clinging, craving, attachment that cause our grief and mourning. Okay. Um, the source of Dhamma is that we think we can gain satisfaction by clinging to things which are impermanent. Then why could this dukkha not be eliminated by a form of cognitive therapy which aims to change our assumptions about how to gain satisfaction. What therapy? Uh, cognitive therapy. Cognitive therapy. I'm not very much uh, familiar with uh, cognitive therapy. I believe that maybe uh, cognizing the fact that things are impermanent. We accept it and uh, go along with it. Then since things are changing, we understand that, and live, that's what I mentioned this afternoon in my talk, once we understood things are changing, accept that reality in life, then we become, we, we adopt a sort of equanimous attitude, so when things uh, even disappear from us, we would not be so badly hurt because we have all the anticipated that is this is what's going to happen. This has been happening, changing all the time. And then we realize, well, this is what I would I have already known in advance. This is now something different. It's the natural natural one of the natural phases of impermanence. So surely uh, that's a very good way of uh, treating our mind, to accept the reality of impermanence as it is. Uh, this again uh, emphasizes what we were, we were discussing about the three roots, uh, unwholesome roots. But now this uh, is given in two parts. So, number one is, is the following correct? 
To purify the mind means to empty the mind of whatever interferes with the spontaneous arising, peaking, and passing away of feelings, perceptions, intentions, thoughts, and so forth. That is, to empty the mind of the source of the glue by which we stick to certain thoughts, desires, etc. This source is the three roots, greed, hatred, and delusion. If part one is correct, then to purify the mind does not mean to empty the mind of particular thought contents or intention contents or perception contents and so forth. That may happen when we empty ourselves of the three roots, but we don't aim directly at the contents. Your thoughts. We don't. What last part? What is we don't? Uh, uh, see, we don't aim directly at the contents. We don't do it indirectly. No, no we don't aim directly. Aim directly. Aim directly. Aim directly. Okay. When we uh, yes empty the mind of uh, negative roots, unwholesome roots, there has to be something to do positively, that is cultivating the positive side. Removing negative side is one uh, aspect, and then there has to be something to do to cultivate the mind. Emptying itself is not enough. People normally say, we meditate to empty the mind. Uh, we don't meditate just to empty the mind, we want to empty the, the negative things, remove the negative things, and cultivate positive things. That's what we do. We have to do both, getting rid of negative roots and cultivating the positive roots. Positive roots are letting go, generosity. Keep cultivating generosity. Generosity in the real, deep, profound sense of the word generosity means Letting go of our greed. Letting go of our greed. Now, clinging, craving, attachment, once we eliminate it, then there has to be a further reinforcement of it. That's called nisarana. Once it is gone, it must, we must determine not to let it come back. We must let it determine to let go of it forever, never to come back again. That's the positive side. Similarly, when uh, uh, resentment or anger, unwholesome root, disappears, we very positively cultivate the thought of friendliness, metta. When uh, delusion fades away, we cultivate wisdom deliberately in order to prevent it, prevent delusion from arising again. So, eliminating and cultivating both should be done. That's the end of the question. That's the end of the question that took exactly one hour. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Unless, of course, maybe somebody wants to bring a question up from the floor. I don't know. From the floor, I'm tired now. <laughs> Anybody has any more questions anyway? From the floor? Yeah. Um, I've heard Metta 
translated as loving kindness. Uh -huh. And it seems like you're talking about loving friendliness. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you could talk about the distinction, or if there is one. Okay. I think there's a question quite appropriate. Uh, before we go to bed, we have to know the meaning, difference between these two. Loving kindness uh, is a wrong translation. Why it is wrong? The Pali word metta comes from the root mitta. Mitta means friend. If you look up in the dictionary, Pali dictionary, Sanskrit mitra means friend. In spoken Hindi, spoken Sinhalese, we use the word mitra for friend. Mitra in Pali, meaning the same thing, friend. Mitra's nature is friendliness. Mitra's nature is maitri in Pali. Sanskrit, maitri in Pali. Mitta. So the word should be translated, the metta should be translated into English as loving friendliness. Even if you don't use the word loving, the word friendliness is sufficient to convey the meaning, Pali meaning in English. Friendliness. To make it even more altruistic, we add loving friendliness. Even without that we can say friendliness. Correct. Loving kindness is wrong because in this four Brahmavyara, four Brahmavyara is metta, karuna, mudita, upekka. Metta is friendliness, karuna is compassion, kindness. So when we use metta, loving kindness, and then again we say kindness for karuna. It is redundant and also inappropriate when we have a very full one word for compassion we use compassion for that don't mix with compassion with metta and say loving friendliness loving kindness and kindness again so we want to separate this we know the meaning of kind meaning of uh, karuna is kindness compassion meaning of metta is friendliness. In order to keep this distinction between these two words and convey the real meaning of each word, in my translation I use living friendliness and compassion. Okay.